Hello, welcome to the Co-Design in Publics podcast, a space where we bring together activists, practitioners, and academics to examine and discuss design ideas on the public realm. My name is Juan Subillaga. My name is Asim Inam. And we are your hosts for this episode. So today we have our fantastic team of scholars joining us. We have Charlotte Lemansky, reader in urban geography at the University of Cambridge, Melanie Lombard, lecturer in the Department of Urban Studies and Planning at the University of Sheffield, Abdul Malik Simon, professorial fellow at the Urban Institute at the University of Sheffield, Neha Sami, researcher from the Indian Institute of Human Settlements, Simon Springer, professor of human geography at the University of Newcastle in Australia, and Fernando Luis Lara, professor at the University of Texas in Austin. This is the second part of our introduction where we met with our team to discuss the meaning of the public realm. We hope you enjoy the episode. So I think some of you already talked a little bit about this, but what are the relationships between spatial aspects? So for example, materiality of buildings, open spaces, infrastructures, and the non-spatial aspects, for example, public policies, financial arrangements, community demographics of the public realm. I can jump in to start. If... So yeah, I mean, I think there's an, you know, an integral connection here that spatial forms are necessarily deeply influenced by society and society in turn is necessarily impacted by spatial forms. I mean, when I first read this question, what I immediately thought of was first job after my PhD was working at National University of Singapore, NUS for short, and students like to call it the National University of Steps. And I kind of asked a little bit about, you know, why, why they call it that. And maybe it was obvious because there were steps everywhere. But then this other story sort of came to the surface where there was this idea that the university was particularly built in that location in Singapore because students were known as the most socially active and, and potentially the most inclined to cause disruptions to the political system and building it in such a space where there were lots of steps and not, you know, a big area where, where students could gather would lend itself well to maintaining the political status quo and not enabling social movements to form. So, you know, this, this notion of, you know, I, I don't know whether this rumor is true. I mean, it's something that students had sort of taken on and it had became, took on its own life in terms of a, I, I guess, a funny sort of anecdotal thing that students passed on to one another. But whether it's true or not is not what I found particularly interesting about it. What was interesting is that the rumor simply existed because I think it tells us something important about the relational connection between spatial form and social understandings or political understandings. So did the social understanding of politics in Singapore create the rumor and thus the spatial form became understood as such? Or did the spatial form of the university with all the steps contribute to the rumor and help interpret social understandings of politics in Singapore. So it's this chicken and egg type scenario, I guess. But for me, it demonstrates the assemblage between spatial and the spatial and the non-spatial to the point that I would argue that, you know, what you've identified as, as non-spatial aspects of the public realm are actually necessarily spatial. So for example, I mean, you've got their public policies, financial arrangements, and community demographics. So 
financial arrangements and public policies never float in some de detached abstract dimension. Instead, they always have, you know, material consequences, right? They, all, they always embed themselves in particular, in particular places. And community demographics, similarly, are constitutive, constitutive of geography in particular ways. So another example from Singapore, in terms of community demographics, what they've done, the H, uh, HDB, the housing development blocks in Singapore, the government has tried to structure the demographics of those in such a way that there's ethnic diversity across each of the house, housing development board sites. So it's one sort of material manifestation of a particular policy, and, and you see the assemblage come together there. I think, you know, building on what Simon said and building on the responses we had to the previous question, this really hints at, you know, it, it reaffirms what is the difference between public space and the public realm. And it builds on the kind of discourses and the critiques that Melanie was speaking to, which is that the pub public space isn't just about the materiality of that physical space. Public space inherently connects to the public realm, to the politicisation of that. And as I spoke about earlier, one of the things I've been working on in my own work is this idea of, of what I call infrastructural citizenship, which is effectively one way that's helping me to think about, is giving me a lexicon to kind of think about how the non-spatial elements of people's lives, citizenship, rights, responsibilities, perceptions, practices, are frequently mediated through infrastructure. And certainly in my work in South Africa, and it kind of picks up on what Simon was saying in Singapore, this is particularly evident for some groups rather than others. Now, in, in South Africa, my research finds, you know, particularly for low income urban dwellers who are completely dependent on the state for access to basic services like housing, water, sanitation, electricity. So their non-material citizenship is inherently connected to their material access to infrastructure. And to some extent, that's true for all of us. Even in the neoliberal privatised era here in the UK, my access to water, electricity, sanitation is inherently connected. Uh, that, that material access is inherently related to my political rights as a citizen. The, the nuances differ significantly across empirical cases, but it's very clear that there's a very strong link between kind of um, a, a non-spatial or non-material citizenship and the materiality of access to infrastructure. And so in, in kind of in some senses, political identities as, as citizens conflate with material identities as infrastructure consumers. Now, obviously, that, that's only one way. I'm not saying that's the only way. That's one way of thinking about the kind of spatial, non-spatial, public as a space, public as a non-space or public as a realm. But, but for me, thinking about the connections between infrastructure and citizenship have been really fruitful for how I've started to rethink some of the, the work that I've been doing in South Africa. I don't know how others think. Yeah, I think that's a really key point you're making is how do we think about this? How do we talk about it? How do we engage in it? So I can talk a little bit about how I do it with, you know, since I'm based in School of Architecture and, you know, space is primal. I talk about design of spaces, which goes hand in hand with design of processes and systems that produce those spaces. I think that is the challenge. How do we, there are different ways of talking about this and how do we of course, we know they're interconnected, they're overlapping, they're you know, intertwined. But how do we talk about it? How do we describe it? How do we analyze it? So I think that's, there are many ways of doing it. And so, I mean, for me, that's, I think that's a wonderful opportunity that, you know, a lot of, lot of people are working on is ways of discussing these relationships, these kind of relational aspects of cities. I could build on that a bit, um, drawing on what Charlotte was saying, especially about thinking about these questions in contexts that are 
designated as informal. So, I mean, I, I thought a bit about this question, firstly, in terms of people who have worked explicitly on public space in the context of informal neighbourhoods in Latin America, like Jaime Hernández García and Maurizio Hernández Bonilla, who have looked at these issues in Colombia and in Mexico. And I mean, they highlight right from the start that it's important to go beyond a narrative of survival strategies in informal contexts to understand how public spaces are physically constructed, that there's kind of a desire and a kind of impulse to create good quality public spaces in, in you know, all sorts of diverse settings. I think in my own work, perhaps tried to get to this in through a slightly different um, theoretical construct of place and placemaking, taking the concept of place as having three dimensions of location, physical location, locale in terms of the space where social activities and relations take place, but then also place meaning and the construction of meaning that is attached to, you know, all sorts of placemaking activities. And I think that allowed me to perhaps get at some of these questions about how we link the material to political and social relations in the urban context. Um, and so I think it's interesting here to think about how thinking about the public realm allows us to perhaps articulate specific neighbourhoods with the wider political and social urban context and to sort of emplace them or contextualise them within the wider city rather than looking at them as standalone cases, for example. And we can see, you know, this nexus of spatial and non-spatial through how communities interact with local authorities around the acquisition of land, but also installation and maintenance of infrastructure, as Charlotte says. But then things like the shared use of space by different groups and communities, you know, even quite peripheral neighbourhoods often have spaces that are shared with other groups because you know there's a football pitch where different neighborhood groups come together and use that space so there's a kind of um you know a group interaction uh, imperative going on around these shared public spaces and then of course this issue of contestation and negotiation that is perhaps more frequently associated with informal contexts and i think we could probably contest that here and, and kind of complicate that or interrogate that notion a little bit um, but i do think often peripheral neighborhoods certainly those that have you know that don't necessarily have clear rights to the land that they're situated on are more vulnerable perhaps to claim making by other influential actors whether that's the state or private actors and sometimes criminal actors um, as I've been seeing more recently uh, in my work in Buenaventura particularly in Colombia so I think all of those issues come into play and then I guess in my own work on place meaning I was especially interested in how these processes of negotiation and contestation and so on add up to the construction of place meaning for the people who have actually been most involved in in these um, processes so the residents of a given place in terms of not just their appropriation of space but also how they assign meaning there how they name places how they name streets how they kind of talk about this place how it has a, a discursive element I guess in terms of the, the construction of place so again linking spatial and non-spatial aspects. Thinking a little bit more about the relationship between what constitutes the spatial and the non-spatial aspects of the public realm itself, I think this builds on that earlier reflection uh, around the difference between public space and the public realm. Like I said earlier, most often we tend to think of public space as being the manifestation of the public realm and therefore the presence or the absence of that physical spatial aspect often tends to become the key metric or the measure of the existence or the non-existence of any form of publics. 
However, I think as we move forward over the course of this year, it's critical to understand uh, and to reflect that there is much more to the development of publics than just the spatial aspect. And uh, like I said earlier, it includes processes and policies, the politics around investment and disinvestment in particular types of planning and infrastructure. So in the case of India, for example, the investment in a lot of mega infrastructure that you know includes high-speed rail, limited access highways, flyovers and bridges tends to in some ways exclude and, and invest in the creation of particular kinds of physical aspects that that you know would would perhaps exclude the creation of you know large public spaces for example it also i would also kind of like to think about non-spatial aspects as involving communities and movements and a whole range of other governance mechanisms I would particularly, and this comes from my own bias in terms of my own work, like to think about it in terms of the governance mechanisms around particularly the creation uh, and the formation of infrastructure. Because if you think of, and I think this this relates much more to the third kind of reflection around publics in the South, but I think that it's actually really important to think about the kinds of investments in both planning processes, governance processes, but also financial investments that we're making in our cities in the South today, because these will inform the way communities come together, they will inform the, the way in which publics are created, not just at the present moment, but for the next couple of decades. And so I think it's really, really important to actually pay attention to a lot of the sort of processes and policies and planning around urbanization in, in the context of the South. I would also like to expand the notion of the public realm and of public spaces to digital and virtual spaces and the ways in which these have been increasingly used for the creation of collectives and the ways in which there has been an increasing focus on the governance of these spaces online as well. In the last year and a half, the importance of sort of digital spaces and virtual spaces has been brought home to us much more critically with the, the pandemic. But things like the Black Lives Movement and the extension rebellions across the world, the farmers' movements and the anti-CA protests in India against the new sort of proposed citizenship bill have actually been sort of made possible in their physical manifestations because of the mobilization of digital collective spaces and publics. And so to think also and to start expanding and uh, these kind of the idea of the public, not just in terms of the physical space, but to think about how we conceptualize digital and virtual spaces and the way in which they are increasingly being used to, f to create new publics, not just in particular cities, but to also build connections across the world. And, and to, to kind of leverage and think about how they might become increasingly valuable in a world where travel and physical movement seems to be an uncertainty in the near near future. And also to think about the kinds of policies, processes, etc. That, that focus on enabling some of these spaces, but also on the policing and the governance of these. Um, in, in a district of, of northern Paris, there is a fairly old uh, social housing development which some years ago, residents completely hollowed out from the inside and constructed a variety of different spaces, which depending on, on where you positioned yourself, one particular aspect might have looked like a kitchen, the others might look like workshops, others might look like recreational spaces, spaces of worship, people hanging around, people sleeping around in different uh, configurations and proximities, but it was a it was a space that was completely occluded from external view. The residents, who were you know primarily uh, West West of West African origin, Algerian Tunisian origins, broken families, 
you know, all the classic attributions you want to make about sort of marginalized urban residents continue to perform that role to external view. But from the inside, it was something completely different happened, but it was it was not it was never clear exactly to what that inside who that inside belonged to and who would determine how anything was to be used on any given occasion and what would happen to it, uh, what was the what was the eventual disposition of it going to to be to whom did it belong who was responsible for managing there were all these sort of ambiguous edges in terms of managing interiority that was always on the edge of becoming something different than what it appeared to, to be. It was completely, in some sense, insulated from, from the outside. In the inside, all kinds of transactions and alliances and bargainings took place. On the outside, youth were still you know, segmented in terms of gang affiliations and ethnic, ethnic affiliations and so what, why, why I'm telling this is, in some ways, one always has to operate, when one thinks about how one maneuvers, one always has to operate under the sense of being, of being the object of potential extraction, of theft, of curtailment, of violence, of constriction, of the imposition of particular kinds of points of view, and what one can do with that. So in some sense, what that housing, the secret of that housing project was materialized in particular ways that makes it sort of singular. But one then thinks that anything that you look at from the outside might might also embody and include a whole different kind of sense of becoming, a whole different sense of, of what might be possible. So in this sense, infrastructure always points to something beyond itself. It always is, is suggesting things that could have happened but didn't or might have happened, but we just don't, we're not able to, we're not able to, to, to see it. So it's a, kind of, it's a kind of trick in a way. Just to pick up on, on that, Malik, one of the classic authors on infrastructure, Susan Starr, one of the things that she's written about in her work from 20 years ago is that infrastructure doesn't exist as a static thing infrastructures, plural, only exist when they come into connection with humans, when they um, have some sort of visceral human connective process, that, that a static pipe isn't an infrastructure, it's a pipe, would almost be Susan Starr's argument, you know, and she talks about the ethnography of infrastructure, both from a consumption, but also from a production side. And I think that really echoes what you're saying about the ways in which infrastructure always points to something else. It isn't a thing in its own right. Thank you for joining us in today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to be notified when we release a new episode. You can also follow us on Twitter at CodesignPublics or Instagram at CodesigningPublics. This podcast is part of the Codesigning Publics Research Network, a project funded by the UK Arts and Humanities Research Council and hosted at Cardiff University. Thank mm-hmm. you.